Good afternoon. What a good grace it is to gather with God's people and sing the songs of the saints. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to James 4, James 4, verse 1 to 12. Listen now to the gracious words of Jesus Christ. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or you do not suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you, are, if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your gracious and almighty and pure words. Lord, we ask now that your spirit would come and help us to receive this word with faith and humility. We ask that your word would shine and expose our pride and the idols of our heart. Lord, we ask you to teach us what is true humility that you would show us how to trust in your word, to fight sin, and to run to the refuge of Christ. Lord, we pray you teach us to walk in the true meekness and wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would show us his glory from your word, that you would cause our weary hearts to worship you. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who is a rebel, who hates you, who is against you, that you would break down every wall, you would expose their sin, and you would draw them near to Christ. We pray that you do this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. On May 4th, 
a video went viral of a dispute between, between an Israeli settler named Yaqub and a Palestinian woman named Mana Al-Kurd. The video starts in mid-conversation with Al-Kurd accusing Yaqub of stealing her home. Yaqub, you know that this is not your home. You are stealing my home. But Yaqub replies, if I don't steal it, someone else will steal it. Why are you yelling at me? This small but viral video gives us a window into the ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine. You see, this feud over land is not just between Yaqub and Al-Kurd, but is happening all over East Jerusalem and really all over Palestine. Recently, Israeli courts ruled that settlers can reclaim property even though some Palestinian families have lived there for over 50 years. The eviction of these Palestinians sparked riots and even led to war for 11 days, as we saw Hamas rockets and Israeli airstrikes killing over 250 people. Now, this has been a conflict that has been going on for almost 80 years. And what, what is the reason for this conflict? Well, if you ask both parties, they will claim innocence. They will say, Palestinians will say, Israel's to blame. They've stolen Palestinian land. They oppress its people and deny their basic rights. Or Israel will say, it's Palestine's fault. It's groups like Hamas who are threatening the peace. And around and around and around we go. The promise of peace giving way to an endless cycle of blame, turmoil, and death. Now, over the past 80 years, there have been many proposals to resolve the conflict, but all of them have failed. And if we're to be honest, there's only one thing that will bring true and lasting resolution in this land, and it is no other than the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Palestinians and Israelis do not need a change of circumstances. They need, and we need, a change of heart. Whether it be the biggest war or the smallest argument, James explains from our text this afternoon that all conflicts arise from within, from within our sinful hearts. The peace of Christ must rule over our hearts if we're going to experience true and lasting peace in our lives, our relationships, our churches, in our communities around the world. In James 4, excuse me, James 4, 1 to 12, the author is going to show us the raging war of the heart and how to conquer it. James is going to show us the raging war of the heart and how to conquer it. First, we see that James teaches us that our conflicts reveal a deeper problem. That's point number one, a deeper problem. We see this in verse 1 to 6. Look at verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, throughout the, the letter, 
James has been addressing several problem areas in the congregation. Just think back over the past several weeks. Remember that the pressure of suffering in this congregation has led to cracks in their faith and ruptures in their relationships. The poor and the widow are being neglected. The rich are being favored. Members are professing faith without works, and teachers are misusing their authority. Gossip, slander, and unbridled speech is wreaking havoc in the church. And now James turns to address the root of all these issues, our sinful hearts. The heart is the, the inner man, the control center of our thoughts, emotions, and desires. Everything we say and do comes from our hearts. And James explains in our passage this afternoon that we fight with one another because our passions in our hearts are at war within us. The word passion here can also mean strong desires or lusts. These are the sinful desires that inhabit each one of us because of the fall. All of us are born with hearts that are enslaved by the passions of our flesh. This is the sinful state of man apart from Christ. So then James shows us how the passions of, these, of the flesh rules over our hearts and destroys our relationships. Look at verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Here in verse 2, we see that these two sentences are parallel. So do you see that in the text? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James equates our sinful desires with coveting. To covet something is to be jealous, to want something that someone else has. We want something, and our sinful lust to twist our desires into idols. As John Calvin once wrote, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. We are always crafting idols in our hearts, turning God's good gifts into altars of worship. This, James says, is why we quarrel and fight, and even we will murder if necessary. We will fight if anyone gets in the way of what we want most. Think about your last conflict. Deep down, what were you wanting? If only she would show me more respect, then we will not fight. If only he would spend more time with me, then our marriage would be better. My friends, the next time you have a conflict, stop. Ask yourself, what are you really wanting? What are you coveting? Beloved, all our conflicts reveal something we cherish and something we love more than God. We might not turn to murder, but how many times do we harbor sinful anger and bitterness in our hearts? Did not Jesus say, that our sinful anger towards a brother or sister is like murdering them in our hearts. All of us have blood on our hands. This happens all the time in our relationships. Several months ago, I had just finished 
a long day of work. I was extremely tired, but the kids wanted to go play outside. So I decided to deny myself and spend time with the kids. I even thought, what a good dad I am. Later, Maria came outside, and she reminded me that one of the bikes needed to be fixed. Now, I had already spent several hours a while back trying to fix the bike, and I didn't say anything to her, but I thought to myself, I'm really tired. I don't want to think about that right now. Now, after some time passed, as the kids were riding their bikes, Maria again noticed that Eliza's bike was not working. So she said again, hey, Will, you, you know, the bike really needs to be fixed. It's useless. I thought to myself, all my work, useless? Is that what you think about everything I do around here? It's useless? I always deny myself of what I want to serve you and the kids. So clearly, I no longer wanted to deny myself. So I snapped back sarcastically. Maria had gotten in the way of my sinful desire for respect and rest. So I fought with her to get what I wanted most. My friends, your problems in your marriage or your relationships, it's not the other person. Your marriage problems is not your spouse. The problem is not with your harsh boss or your long hours or your disobedient children. The problem is with your idolatrous heart. Now James not only explains how our hearts are ruled by these corrupt desires, but he also shows how our hearts are misled by unbelief. So look again at verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Friends, one of the reasons that you do not have what you want is because you do not ask God in prayer. I'm not saying that. James is saying that. Instead of turning to the creator and sustainer of all things, where do you turn? Turn to the wisdom of this world or your own devices. You listen to the world that tells you, follow your heart, pursue your ambitions, do whatever is necessary to get what you want. Climb the ladder of success. The real reason you do not have what you want is because you turn to the world or you turn to yourself. You do not turn to God in prayer. Oh, friends, how easily our hearts are deceived. We so quickly forget that every single thing on this planet comes from God. He is the creator of all things. So anything you want, he is the designer, he is the creator, and it belongs to him. He alone has the right to give and to take away. He alone really has the power to give you what you want or what you need the most. As Jesus explained in Matthew verse, uh, chapter 6, God is a good father. He's a good father who loves to give 
good gifts. If I love to give good gifts to my children, how much more does God not love to graciously give good gifts to us? Friends, do you really believe this? Do you really believe this? Then why do you not pray? Maybe the reason some of us have so little joy or so little power in prayer because we don't really believe that God will answer. There are things that you do not have because you do not ask. Now, before we dive into prosperity gospel or you accuse me of it, we see that James does not promise that we will get everything we ask. Did you see that in the text? He says, you ask and do not receive. So, sorry, let's go back. He says, you do not have because you do not ha- ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Maybe you are asking. Maybe you are praying. But you do not receive because you're asking wrongly. You're asking God to give you something so that you can spend it on your passions. Instead of asking for God's will to be done, you spend your time praying for things that will gratify the lust of your heart. Beloved, what occupies the majority of your prayers? When you pray, are you more concerned about walking in holiness or getting a raise? Again, nothing wrong for praying and asking God to give you a raise. But what is your heart occupied with? Are your prayers marked with more concern about your brother and sister in need? Or is it more concerned about about getting a new phone or a new purse? Are your prayers motivated by the glory of God in His kingdom? Or by building your own? You know, an example that came to my mind is for our singles. I know that many of you desire marriage and are asking God to provide a spouse. And this is a good desire, and it's a good thing to pray for. But maybe you're praying wrongly. Maybe marriage or a spouse has become an idol in your life, and deep down, you want a spouse to gratify your sinful desires. You want a spouse who will make you feel loved or accepted or who will serve you. Maybe God wants you to ask a different kind of prayer. God, make me a godly man or a woman, godly woman. Please provide me a spouse, not to serve my own passions, but give me a spouse who I can serve and love. Help me be content in my singleness and help me to trust in your sovereign plan. And friends, whether the Lord gives you a spouse or not, does it not please the Lord? to grow you in holiness, and to give you the joyful contentment that you need. Now James not only reveals our sinful passions that wage war against our hearts and our relationships, but he tells us that ultimately the war of the heart is a war against God himself. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friends, when our sinful passions rule our hearts, 
The Bible calls us spiritual adulterers. We are spiritual adulterers. Now, the Scriptures depict God's people as God's beloved bride. This picture continues in the New Testament as the church is described as the bride of Christ. And when you repent of your sins and you trust in Christ, you now belong to Him. You became a member of the church. You are part of His blood-bought bride. He purchased us with the bride price of His own blood. We were pitiful, poor, and naked. But He cleanses us with His blood at the cross. He covers our shame and clothes us with His very garments of righteousness. He establishes us as His beloved, and He ensures us a place next to Him in glory. But friends, every single time, every single time you sin, you bow down to the lust of your flesh, and you are no different than a treacherous wife who leaves behind her husband. Though we are redeemed for glory, how quickly do we leave the wine of paradise to indulge in the sewers of our sin? Friends, this is the ugliness and monstrosity of our idolatrous hearts. Every time our hearts covet or we fight and quarrel with one another, we are actually abandoning God, our husband, and choosing to get in bed with the world. The moment you choose sin and your idols, you choose to be a friend of God. And James says, you make yourself an enemy. Sorry, a friend of the world, and you make yourself an enemy of God. Here, James draws a clear line of demarcation. You are either friends with the world or friends with God. You are either devoted to the lust of your flesh or you're wholly devoted to God. Friends, you cannot serve two masters, period. You cannot spend one night with God and the other with the world. You, know, you cannot say you love God on one hand and then love the world the next. Friends, God is not indifferent to our spiritual adultery. But James says God is jealous for us. He is a jealous God. Look at, look at verse 5. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the Scriptures say, He yearns jealously over the spirits that He has made to dwell in us? Now, the clearest parallel to this verse is found in the Ten Commandments. When the Lord establishes the parameters of covenant love and faithfulness. Exodus 20, verse 5 to 6. Listen to this. You should not bow down to any carved image or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to, those, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see, God alone is worthy of our exclusive devotion and worship. The reason we should not bow down to idols is because God is jealous for us. Unlike our sinful jealousy, God's jealousy is good and right. He is not jealous in the sense that He needs something or that He covets something from us. Rather, He is jealous for us 
because we belong to him. He created us for one purpose and one purpose alone. He created us so that we might enjoy him as our father and worship him as our greatest treasure. You see, my friends, God wants your hearts. He wants everything of you. He wants your entire devotion and love. But the problem we all face is that we do not love God with all our hearts, soul, and mind. And if we're honest, we'd rather be a friend of the world in our sinful flesh. Apart from Christ, each one of us in this room are enemies of God, and we deserve a traitor's death sentence. But the good news of the gospel, my friends, the good news of the gospel is that God does not leave us in our rebellion. Rather, God is gracious and merciful towards us. Look at verse 6. But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives more grace to overcome our adulterous hearts and to bring him wholly to himself. As Douglas Moo explains, God's grace is completely adequate to meet the requirements imposed on us by his divine jealousy. Or as Augustine once said, God gives us what he demands. You see, God demands exclusive allegiance, and he gives us grace to worship him in exclusive allegiance. God gives us the grace to give him our hearts and our lives. Friends, it is only by this grace, the grace of God, that we can be saved and rescued from our adulterous hearts. All of us were born in opposition to God as we aimlessly follow the sinful lust of our flesh. But in the fullness of time, God's grace came down in the person of Jesus Christ. God sent his only son to bear our destinies on the cross. He he paid the blood price for our sin, and he purchased us by his blood. The just wrath of God was satisfied on that cross so that we might receive the fullness and riches of his mercy and grace. Jesus Christ died on that cross, but three days later he rose again, conquering sin and death. And now he offers a pardon. He offers grace. He offers mercy to everyone who will turn from their idolatry and trust in Christ alone. My friends, what is keeping you from receiving this gracious gift of eternal life? Children, youth, those who come every week, why will you not come to Christ? Why will you not abandon your idolatry and flee to the mercy of Jesus Christ? Now, maybe some of you are thinking, okay, I want to believe. I want to receive the grace of God. What do I do? Do I just say a prayer? What does it look like to humble myself and repent of my sins? Or maybe some of you 
beloved, are weighed down in your conscience because of your sin? What does it look like to humbly repent of our sins and to receive the grace of Christ? Well, James tells us in verse 7 to 10, he shows us a humble response. The way we receive God's grace is with humility. It's with humility. Look at verse 7 to 8. Submit yourselves to God, therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, we should humbly submit our hearts and our lives to God. The word submit here means to be subject or to come under. So when we submit to God, we are coming under His authority. We're coming under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You must abandon your thoughts, your desires, your rights, your ways, and your life. Jesus Christ now rules over your life and calls for complete devotion and obedience to His Word. He owns you and you belong to Him. Now when Jesus is your Lord and Savior, when you come under His Lordship, James tells us that there are two things you will do when you face temptation to sin. This is what it looks like to come under the Lordship of Christ, to truly humble yourself and submit to the Lordship of Christ. First, you must resist or stand firm against the devil. You must resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, even as Christians, we are tempted to sin. And Satan is always prowling around to destroy us. As Peter explains in 1 Peter 5.8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Beloved, we must guard our hearts, and we must stand firm against the schemes of Satan. When we submit to Christ and surrender our hearts to Him, one of the fruits or things we do is we say no to our sin. We resist the devil, and we stand in the victory of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ, when He came and He died on the cross, He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and He put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And so now, in Christ, under His headship, as we submit to Christ, we stand firm in the strength of His might. We stand firm and resist the devil as we stand on the rock of our salvation. We take up the whole armor of God, and we wage war against anything and everything that might lead us to sin. We gird up ourselves with the belt of truth, and we find protection under the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. We take up the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. We take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, God's Word, and we make war against our sin. 
Now, what does this practically look like? Let's say you're alone at night and you're being tempted to lust. You're tired and Satan whispers in your ears. Reminds you your phone is just right there and he lies to you. You know, you deserve a break. You've been doing well. It's okay. Give in to your lustful desires and enjoy that video. You know, no one will know. And as your sinful passions are being stored, how can we resist? What is the strength by which we say no? Well, by God's grace, you remember that you must kill sin or sin will be killing you. So you quickly take up the sword of the Spirit and start reading God's Word. Then you turn to Proverbs 5 and you're reminded that the forbidden woman looks pleasing to the eyes. It will look good. But in the end, it will destroy you. It will kill you. So you take up the shield of faith and you believe in God's word. You trust that God's way is best. That holiness is better than any fleeting pleasure. That Christ really is enough. And by your faith in God's word, you extinguish the fiery darts Of the evil one. And when we resist the devil, James says that the devil, Satan himself, will flee from us. Now, this doesn't mean that Satan will never tempt us again. It doesn't mean that we'll never have difficulty or trials. But what it means is in that moment, when God gives us the strength to resist, to fight, to oppose, to kill sin, to flee to the refuge of our Savior we will overcome. He will flee from us. My friends, you must guard your hearts. You must submit your hearts to Christ, and you must guard your hearts from the devil. But what do we do if we find that the battle is too strong for us? Satan lies have pierced our hearts. The passions of the flesh are waging war over us. When we are falling in our sin during the heat of battle, what do we do? James says we must draw near to God. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Beloved, when we stumble and fall in our sin, there's only one place we can turn. There's only one place we can go. We must run to our Savior. We must draw near to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior, is also our high priest. And he mediates God's presence to us. He has given us free access to God through his death on the cross and his resurrection and ascension to the Father. Through His perfect mediation, we can draw near to God with confidence. Now, we don't draw near trusting ourselves or confident in ourselves. We draw near trusting in Christ, confident that His work is enough. And when God draws near to us, James says God Himself will draw near to us. When we draw near to him, he will come to us. He's like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son comes to his senses and returns home, the father runs to him. He clothes his lost son, 
and he calls for a celebration. Friends, this is the posture of God's heart towards his children. He is eager and ready to lavish us with his mercy and grace. So what should we do when we have fallen our sin? When we're weary from the fight, we should draw near to the throne of grace. As the author of Hebrews explains in Hebrews 4.14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Beloved, we must draw near to God. He is merciful and he is ready and eager to lavish us with his grace. So come to him. Draw near to him. When you find that you are weary in the fight, call out to your Father in prayer. Confess your sin and trust in the perfect intercession of Christ. He will draw near to you and he will steady your weary hands and comfort your embattled heart. Now, as we draw near, James explains that the posture of our hearts matters. There's a certain way we draw near. Look at verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So as we draw near to God, we must come with clean hands and a pure heart. So we have confidence to draw near to God through Christ. But it matters how we draw near. If you've sinned against Almighty God, you do not come into His presence laughing and joking as if it's no big deal. You have offended Almighty God, and His holiest demands that our sin be dealt with. We cannot draw near to God with blood on our hands and evil desires raging in our hearts. You see, we must draw near to God with humility and sobriety. We are sinners, and we can be like the double-minded man who blesses Christ one day and curses his neighbor the next. Beloved, the Scriptures are abundantly clear that the only way that we can cleanse our hearts is to humbly confess our sins and to trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The only way we can cleanse our hearts is not from within us, but it's from without us, from outside of us. We must confess our sins and trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That glorious passage in 1 John 1, what does it say? It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There's nothing inside of us that can cleanse us. There's nothing we can do in ourselves to be forgiven. 
We must look outside to us. We must look to the cross. We must confess our sins that we have rejected him, that we have rebelled against him, that we have believed the lies of the serpent, that we have chased after the idols of our hearts. We say, God, confess my sin. Forgive me of my iniquity. I turn again to you and trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Friends, how many times when you are caught in sin, do you turn to yourself or to other things? Maybe you turn and run away like Adam and Eve and try to hide yourself. Maybe you distract your heart with social media. Or maybe you try to earn back your favor, the favor of God. You try to work hard or be good enough or read your Bible enough. Then then I can come near to God. Only, only through confession of sin and trusting in the cross. Did not Jesus pay it all? There's nothing you can do to add to the work of Christ. So come to Him. Draw near to Him. Cleanse your hearts by trusting in Christ alone. And God is faithful. He will forgive you and he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But not only do we confess our sins humbly before the Lord, we also must come with a broken and contrite heart. Look at verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy the gloom. You see, true repentance is not just a mere confession of words, but a deep sorrow, a deep regret of the heart. It is a deep brokenness over our sins. It is a sorrow that turns laughter over our sin into mourning, that turns joy into gloom. Now, we know that there are many people who, when they're caught in their iniquity, are sad, or maybe even will show tears. But they're not broken over their offense against God. Paul calls this worldly grief. They are ashamed of what they've done, or they regret that they've hurt someone, but they do not have a a wrought repentance, a, a grief over their sin and a longing to restoration with God. This is not what James is talking about. James is talking about a godly grief. A godly grief that Paul says leads to repentance without regret. It is a heart that recognizes that your sin rightly deserves God's judgment. It is a heart that is broken over your sin and recognizes that your sin is against God and God alone. It is a heart like King David who confessed his sin before the Lord in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Or it's a heart like the tax collector in the parable that Jesus tells. 
the tax collector, who would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. My friends, are you broken over your sin and your rebellion against God? Or are you only concerned about the consequences? Do you only care what people think? Do you recognize that your sin is an offense against God and it's like adultery against Him? We must mourn and weep over our sin. And we must turn with humility but with confidence as we confess our sin and trust in Christ for our forgiveness and our restoration. My friends, this is what it looks like to humble ourselves before the Lord and to receive His grace. And James says that everyone who humbles themselves, God will exalt. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Only the humble will get glory. This is the way that God has designed the world. This is the path that Christ took Himself when He humbled Himself to the point of death on a cross. And God exalted Him as the name above every name. The path to glory, my friends, is only found on that old beaten path to Calvary. Friends, Jesus Christ bore our sin and our shame so that we might receive the full measure of God's grace and so that He might exalt us as sons and daughters of God. Friends, do not live for the vain and fleeting glory of this world. It is perishing. It is fleeting. It will only leave you, leave you in misery and ruin and hell forever. Friends, live for the eternal glory of Christ. Humble yourself and He will exalt you on that last day. He will raise you from the dead and He will give you the glory of His Son. You will reign with Him forever. You will enjoy His presence forever. You will be exalted and enjoy the glory of the Savior forever. This is the good news of the gospel for everyone who will humbly submit to the Lord, who will recognize their sin, turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus Christ. My friends, humble yourself, and God will exalt you. Now, finally, in closing, really quickly, we see that in light of all these truths, James gives us one final command. He gives us one final command. Let's look at verse 11 to 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver law and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, here is like a concluding statement or a summary, not only of our passage, but really of the past two chapters. This is what James has been after for two chapters. You see, the church has been clearly divided. They've been devouring one another with their tongues. 
And the only way we bridle our tongues, the only way we pursue peace and speak to one another in love is through a humble heart. The only way that we will not show partiality, the only way that we will have good works through our faith, the only way that we will tame our tongue, the only way that we will walk in the wisdom from above is through humble hearts that trust in Christ. So here James kind of gives a summary command that really is summarizing this whole section. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. In light of what I have just said about the heart, humble yourself and speak not evil, but life. Friends, we must always and daily humble ourselves. We must see our sin for what it is, an offense against God. We must daily repent of our sin. We must daily seek to love one another with our lips and with our lives. You see, when you are proud and arrogant, you will speak evil against your brother. You will judge him. You will set yourself up like a judge with evil thoughts. A judge who James says is like judging the law itself. When you judge another brother, you are like one who's judging God's word. You're not a doer of the word. We must humble ourselves and trust in the gospel. We must trust Christ and love one another in humble submission to his word. We must love one another out of our heartfelt love for God. Now, when James talks about not judging your neighbor, he's not talking about not examining one another. He's not telling us we can't confront one another. Rather, he's reminding us that God alone can judge the heart. So even if we confront a brother or sister, we must do it with humility and love. We must never condemn one another with our words, but we always must speak the truth in love. We must always point one another humbly to the cross. Even when we excommunicate someone, we are making a judgment based on the fruit of their life. But beloved, we can never make a final judgment. God alone is the final judge and Lord. God alone can save and destroy. So whether we are participating in the humble uh, act of excommunication of a brother or sister, or whether we're confronting someone else, may we do it with humility and love. Let us be quick to repent of our pride, and may we be quick to humbly use our words to build one another up until Christ returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glory of our Savior. We thank you for what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. So Lord, we just ask and plead that you would work in our midst, that you would humble us of our pride, that you would help us to walk in obedience, that you would teach us how to humbly love one another through faith in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.